If you're worried about surviving the blast of a nuclear bomb and think a day or two in an underground bunker will be enough to get you through it, and then you hear... War planners like to talk about blasts, but blast really doesn't matter. If you're in the fire zone, you're going to die. You can't escape from it. In a matter of about 10 or 15 minutes, the air temperatures rise above the boiling point of water. So if you can imagine one gigantic 100-square-mile firestorm, and you multiply that times 100 or 1,000, then you can see what a nuclear war would do. Well, when you hear something like that, you've got to know that you are in the seat we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we learned the truth about nuclear winter from Stephen Starr. He is a senior scientist with Physicians for Social Responsibility and an associate of the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation. Plus, we'll have nuclear news from around the world. Numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, the duck, and cover report on Nuclear Regulatory Commission reports of what's gone wrong this week with those aging nuclear rust buckets, and more honest nuclear information than Harvey Weinstein ever put in a movie because it just wasn't enough of an inappropriate turn-on for him. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, October 17, 2017, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting off in the U.S., where Donald Trump as President of the United States has now committed a trifecta of bad nuclear positions. Last Friday, which happened to be the 13th of October, Donald Trump decertified the Iran Nuclear Accord, or at least he announced that he would. To remind you, this agreement stopped an Iranian bomb from being developed without starting a new war in the Middle East. It was considered a major victory for national and global security and had been negotiated by the U.S. and other world powers. By U.S. law, Iran's compliance with the landmark 2015 agreement must be certified by the president every 90 days. If it is not certified by him, a 60-day window of opportunity opens in which Congress can reimpose nuclear-related sanctions with a simple majority thus repealing the international agreement on the part of the United States. The response to this decertification was immediate, with a coalition of grassroots organizations representing tens of millions of Americans slamming the White House's reckless decision to undermine an extremely successful and broadly popular diplomatic effort. Diplomacy, the D word. It has been roundly opposed by Peace Action, MoveOn.org, 
Win Without War, the National Iranian American Council, and Plowshares. That's just the list so far. It took 20 months of negotiation to set up what is called the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. According to the coalition, Congress will now decide whether to reimpose sanctions on Iran that were lifted as part of the nuclear agreement. Make no mistake, a vote to reimpose these sanctions is ultimately a vote for war. Number two, the U.S. and South Korean navies have kicked off a five-day round of military drills near the Korean Peninsula, the type of exercise that North Korea has previously responded to with ballistic missile tests. That country's way of saying, don't even think about it. But think about it, we are. Guided missile destroyers USS Streatham and USS Mustin, along with the Fukushima radiation-hit supercarrier USS Ronald Reagan, will join several South Korean ships as part of the Maritime Counter Special Operations Exercise. According to the commander of the U.S. Navy's 7th Fleet, a scheme to eliminate nuclear facilities belonging to the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, North Korea, with tactical nukes, quote, is under consideration when the U.S. is going to stage a high-intensity joint drill in the waters surrounding the Korean Peninsula. The North Korean state-run news agency responded, the Trump group should think twice about what terrible consequences the U.S. will face due to its scheme for nuclear attacks on the DPRK, calling the actions reckless military gambling and North Korea renewed a promise to target the U.S. territory of Guam with a, quote, salvo of missiles in the event of U.S. attacks against North Korea. Number three, at a gathering this past summer of the nation's highest-ranking national security leaders, Donald Trump said he wanted what amounted to a nearly tenfold increase in the U.S. nuclear arsenal. This according to three officials who were in the room. According to them, Trump's comments came in response to a briefing slide he was shown that charted the steady reduction of U.S. nuclear weapons since the late 1960s. Trump indicated he wanted a bigger stockpile. The officials briefly explained the legal and practical impediments to a nuclear buildup and how the current military posture is stronger than it was at the height of the buildup. They also said that no such expansion is planned. You know, for a guy who got five deferments from service and never saw one minute of military action, Trump sure does like war, as long as somebody who isn't him or his family is fighting it. Looking at U.S. nuclear reactors this week, in Plymouth, Massachusetts, operators failed to identify and document 23 critical digital assets that perform functions related to safety systems and emergency preparedness at Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station at the foot of Cape Cod. This despite being told about the shortcomings by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission inspectors in 2015. The identification of critical digital components is one of the early steps commercial nuclear plant owners are required to take under federal regulations aimed at beefing up cybersecurity. Once components were identified as critical, plant owners were required to protect them from radiological sabotage via cyber attack. This past summer, two cybersecurity violations were found at Pilgrim. For the nuclear reactor, duck! <laughs> And cover report, Browns Ferry in Alabama had an unplanned inoperability 
because of problems with high-pressure coolant injection. And at Palo Verde in Arizona, not one but two supervisors tested positive for illegal drugs. And a great suggestion from Beyond Nuclear that dead nuclear reactors should be autopsied. According to their article in Truthout, when a nuclear reactor shuts down permanently, it provides the perfect opportunity for the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission to demand a full autopsy. What better way to understand the perilous safety condition of our aging and still operating nuclear reactors than to conduct a full technical inspection of the closed ones? The NRC has never ordered this. This suggestion comes hard on the heels of action by U.S. Energy Secretary Rick Perry, who recently awarded an additional $3.7 billion in federal loan guarantees to the over-budget, behind-schedule project to build two new nuclear reactors at Vogel in Georgia. This on top of $8.3 billion in subsidy the project has already received. And now... Nuclear Hot Seat Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out a week. With U.S. President Donald Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un trading insults and threatening war and using the N-word, nuclear, California officials are taking the threat of nuclear exchange seriously. That's why the Los Angeles Area Joint Regional Intelligence Center issued a bulletin last month warning that a nuclear attack on Southern California would be catastrophic. Ya think? So they have urged officials in the region to shore up their nuclear attack response plans. Now, this is besides the fact that while in theory North Korea may have a missile that could reach Los Angeles, they don't have a genuine delivery system for a nuclear weapon, nor do they have the guidance systems in space to allow for accuracy upon delivery. But be that as it may, a 16-page Nuclear Attack Response Considerations Bulletin, dated August 16 and marked for official use only, was circulated last month to Los Angeles area local, state, and federal agency personnel, and also throughout the Department of Homeland Security and other federal agencies across the country. So what kind of information is being spread by this bulletin? In a section on radiation protection basics, the report offers a primer on what to do during a nuclear attack. It says, and I quote, Lie face down and place hands under the body to protect exposed skin. Remain flat until the heat and shock waves have passed. In other words, Duck and cover, only you're flat as opposed to curled up under your desk. L-O-L. When you hear today's featured interview with Stephen Starr, you will understand exactly how ridiculous that claim is. Also, in the aftermath of the blast, the bulletin warns of difficulties government authorities would likely encounter in dealing with the public, which will need to evacuate, the report says, but with, quote, limited understanding of radiation risks, they will experience high anxiety and may be non-compliant. Why don't you just say that if anybody's still left alive, they will be freaked out? If any transportation is possible, the routes will all be gridlocked, nobody will be able to get anywhere, and this will extend 
for hundreds of miles. The report also cites problems with contamination spread by pets and through clothing and says, nonetheless, government entities and first responders are expected to remain operational to preserve human life, maintain order, and aid in the recovery process. Look around at the world around us now. The government of the United States can't deal with the aftermath of hurricanes and forest fires. They're expected to remain operational after a nuclear blast. Oh, but this report does admit that the federal government will likely be of limited help immediately after a nuclear blast and says, quote, there will be no significant federal assistance at the scene for 24 to 72 hours following the attack. They don't say what's going to happen from hour 73 on. And that whole report is why you, the Los Angeles area joint regional quote-unquote intelligence center, a contradiction in terms, is awarded this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's of the week. Over to Japan, where a data falsification scandal has hit Japan's Kobe Steel. The company admitted widespread falsification of data related to quality control in metals products provided to various customers, including TEPCO, Tokyo Electric Power Company, for Fukushima Daiichi. Kobe cited a set of copper pipes provided to TEPCO for Fukushima Daiichi as being among the questionable parts. TEPCO then claimed that the parts were never actually used, and another part cited the non-used pipes, saying they were actually delivered to Fukushima Daiichi and the dog ate their homework. Back in 2013, Kobe Steel provided 19 spent fuel storage casks to Fukushima Daiichi to remove spent fuel from the common pool and then store it in temporary storage facilities. While Kobe hasn't come out to the press and explicitly admitted these casks were part of the data falsification scandal, the company is now admitting that the problem was commonplace and went back decades. If these casks potentially have substandard steel in them or flawed production practices, this could be a considerable problem at the disaster site. Yeah, think? And following that same plan of inaction, Japan Nuclear Fuel Limited violated legally binding safety rules by failing to conduct necessary checks for 14 years at its uncompleted spent nuclear fuel reprocessing plant in the country's northeast. This according to the Japan Nuclear Regulatory Authority. Only now does the utility plan to check its facilities and some 600,000 devices by the end of the year, before requesting the authority to resume its safety assessment for the plant. By the way, completion date for the Rokashu plant has been postponed 23 times since it was begun in 1997. In France, on October 12, to underline the vulnerability of spent fuel pools and nuclear reactors to attack, Greenpeace activists set off fireworks inside a nuclear plant in Catanome in eastern France. The anti-nuclear group said the fireworks were set off at the foot of the spent fuel pool, where nuclear plants store highly radioactive fuel rods that are removed from reactors after their use. According to a post on Twitter from Greenpeace, our activists launched a firework in the perimeter of a French nuclear plant. These installations are vulnerable. 
The group followed this action the next day with organized actions in about 20 cities on Saturday, all pointing out the vulnerability of nuclear reactors to, as they called it, acts of malice. In Finland, continued problems with construction of the Okiloto 3 nuclear power plant have pushed the facility's expected start date into 2019, meaning operations will not begin until at least 10 years after the original proposed start of commercial service. Isn't that just like a nuke? Scotland's Dune Ray nuclear site, which is being decommissioned at a cost of 2.32 billion pounds, that's close to 4 billion U.S. dollars, and now they are seeking health experts to be appointed by the operator. That's putting the fox in charge of the hen house at a facility that has had three serious incidents in its 60-year history. And 31 years after the Chernobyl nuclear accident, wild boars currently roaming central and northern Sweden show exceptionally high levels of radioactivity. They eat mushrooms rooted deep in the ground that remain radioactive even this long after contamination. More proof that nuclear disasters have long-term environmental impacts both near and far from where they occur. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, Nuclear Hot Seat needs your support to meet its monthly financial obligations. Be it a one-time donation of any amount or a monthly sustaining donation, it all helps to keep honest, verifiable nuclear information flowing out to you, the listeners. Even $5, the equivalent of a cup of coffee and a nice tip to the barista, will go a long way towards helping us meet our costs and keeping the show running. So how about giving us a hand? And no, I don't mean applause, although we accept that too. Give what you can by going to nuclearhotseat.com and click on the big red donate button. Or if you want to buy the show that metaphoric cup of coffee every month, you can quickly set up a monthly $5 donation by clicking on the big green donate button. Know that whatever you can do to help. I'm grateful that you're listening, that you care, and I'm just grateful we're all still around to say these things to each other. Here's this week's featured interview. Stephen Starr is a senior scientist with Physicians for Social Responsibility and an associate of the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation. I first heard him speak at Dr. Helen Caldicott's 2015 symposium at the New York Academy of Science, The Dynamics of Possible Nuclear Extinction. I love the way Dr. Caldicott always picks the most cheerful titles for her symposia. As for Stephen, the devastating clarity he brought to the issue of nuclear winter created perhaps the most long-lasting impact of all the speakers I heard over the two days of that symposium. I've wanted him as a guest for this show ever since, and now I've got him. We finally spoke on Thursday, October 12, 2017. Stephen Starr, it is so good to have you as our guest today on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thanks very much for having me, Libby. Let's start out with a little about your background so people can understand where this information is coming from. What is your field of study? Why did you choose it? And how long have you been involved with nuclear issues? Well, my field of study is uh, not really related to nuclear in terms of what I do for a living. I'm the director of the clinical lab science program at the University of Missouri, 
I do teach a nuclear weapons class at the university. I got interested in nuclear weapons probably when I was a kid uh, doing duck and cover drills in third grade. So I think I've always had some sort of obsession or whatever uh, interest of nuclear war. I was in nuclear engineering for a little while at the University of Arizona when I was in college. But uh, I really started studying nuclear weapons in earnest probably a couple of years after that. And that just went on. It was a lot of self-study, really. Um, <laughs> that's not typical, but I did more and more writing, and I wound up uh, getting an article published in the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists in 2004 with a retired uh, physician named Alan Phillips. That got me invited to speak at the United Nations a couple of years later. I wound up working as an expert witness for New Zealand and Switzerland at some of the side panels speaking about the environmental consequences of nuclear war. Because by then, uh, some studies have been published uh, by scientists at Rutgers and University of Colorado in Boulder about, it used to be called nuclear winter, it still is. Uh, I'm not sure if that's the best description of it, but it's, it, it describes the long-term environmental consequences of nuclear war, which are profound and actually probably the most serious threat to human existence that I can think of, uh, at least in the short term. <laughs> So I, that's what I talked about at the UN, and I've written a lot about it in the Bolton Atomic Scientists. I had articles published at the uh, Moscow Institute of Physics and Technology website, their strategic arms reduction site, and also Federation of American Scientists, and uh, I continue to write on it. That brings us, of course, to the key question, which I think most people don't fully understand, and that is, what is nuclear winter? A quick uh, description of that would be the global weather effects of a nuclear war. What happens is a nuclear detonation creates these immense firestorms. A single strategic nuclear weapon, say a Russian warhead, can set on an average of 100 square miles on fire instantly if it's detonated over, say, an urban area. Uh, and all that area coalesces into a single gigantic firestorm and burns about everything possibly that can burn in the fire zone. So if you have hundreds or thousands of those happening at the same time, it puts tens of millions of tons of soot and smoke up above cloud level into the stratosphere. The smoke, there's high winds in the stratosphere, so the smoke basically circles the earth in a matter of 10 days to two weeks and will form a dense uh, stratospheric smoke layer that does two things. It blocks the sunlight from coming in. So when it blocks it, the stratosphere heats up and it destroys most of the ozone layer, which that's what protects us from the ultraviolet, the UVB rays that come down. But it also blocks the warming sunlight, so it can create uh, almost like a winter-like effect in a matter of you know, a week or two. If, this, if a war like that, if a large nuclear war happened, say, in the spring, it would drop temperatures below freezing and keep them there from one to three years, say, in the central U.S. and Russia, a large nuclear war. And then it would take a matter of years, uh, up to 10 years before the temperatures would start to return to anything like normal. And that would probably eliminate growing seasons for many years. So then, you know, obviously, if you can't grow food for you know five or 10 years, you're going to wind up having a, just a global famine that would wipe out most people on the planet. What would it take to trigger a nuclear winter, meaning how many blasts, how much megatonnage? Well, that's a good question. You know, uh, hopefully they don't want to do that experiment to find out exactly. But the scientists that did the studies had what they would consider sort of a baseline study. They used the India-Pakistan nuclear war as a model. And most and people may not realize it, but there's actually been a nuclear arms race going on there for a while. 
there's something like 200 nuclear warheads that are, India may have a few more than Pakistan, but they each have over 100 nuclear warheads. And their, their warheads are, they're not quite into the thermonuclear range, but the studies that the scientists did, they said if we detonated a total of 100 warheads in these large cities, that would put the estimated five to seven million tons of smoke in the stratosphere. So at that level, um, you would have, maybe you might call it nuclear autumn, but it would drop average temperatures. You would have the coldest uh, average temperatures in the northern hemisphere that you've had in the last 1,000 years. They've done some studies that show that it would make really huge decreases in the corn and soybean production, particularly if you get up in Canada, it might not, you might not have any wheat grow up there for several years. So that's, uh, that war represents maybe 1% of the explosive power in the strategic nuclear arsenals of the U.S. and Russia right now. So I think that if they manage to launch their launch-ready nuclear warheads, either the U.S. or Russia, that, I think that would probably detonate enough warheads where it would get, be approaching more of the nuclear winter scenario just from the environmental consequences. But it's, you know, it's hard to be precise because there's a lot of variables in these things. What kind of nuclear weather change could be started from, say, as little as one nuke going off, considering we're in a saber-rattling period now between North Korea and the United States? Well, if you think back, we had 100 atmospheric nuclear weapons tests in Nevada, <laughs> and uh, they didn't create a nuclear winter but, you know, when you, those weapons were detonated over desert areas where there wasn't a lot of flammable material. But even when you burned down, the, say, the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki with uh, the 15 kiloton weapons, you didn't get a nuclear winter effect. There has to be enough smoke up in the stratosphere above cloud level where it won't rain out to block enough sunlight to have, um, I don't know if it's a linear relationship, but I don't think one or two weapons is going to do it. But, you know... Part of the issue with North Korea is if, if that triggers a war with China or Russia, then you have a whole different scenario. But, I mean, <laughs> when you start shooting off nuclear weapons near cities, you're, you're going to have more casualties than you had in World War II in a very short period of time. It's a long-standing joke referred to as doomer humor that activists share with each other that nuclear winter is not the cure for global warming. Yeah. Yet there are some people in government who seem to think that that might be a possibility with a limited nuclear war. What are your thoughts? <laughs> well, if, if there are, it just shows the extent of their ignorance. You know, I mean, there, there's some of the scientists that did these studies on the recent studies on the possibility of um, nuclear winter also have done studies for geoengineering about putting particulate matter up in the atmosphere and the stratosphere to block sunlight. Dr. Robach says it's a very bad idea. But, you know, nuclear nuclear war isn't a remedy for anything. <laughs> I mean, it's it's hard for people to understand you know, the extent of the destruction, even from a single nuclear weapon. But, you know, when you start talking about a war fought with those, then you're really, you know, quickly you're talking about that it's not only the destruction of civilization, but then you're moving to probably wiping out most of the human race. What amazes me is that that sort of discussion never seems to really take place, at least in the nuclear weapon states. You know, people don't hear about that. Well, we'll hear about the threat of terrorism and a single bomb going off, but it's always about, you know, it's a terrorist weapon that's going to be a very, you know, we'd call it a small weapon, like 
the size of one Hiroshima or smaller. But in reality, if you look at it's like the Chinese nuclear weapons, one of their warheads can set six or seven hundred square miles on fire <laughs> instead of three or four like Hiroshima. The strategic nuclear weapons are totally so many times more powerful than the atomic bombs. The class I teach at the university, the students really don't understand that at all. I mean, you know, these are smart kids, but they've never been exposed to this information in their schoolrooms, and they're almost all uniformly horrified after about three weeks of my class because they had no idea. Describe for us what happens when a nuclear bomb goes off. Well, one thing you, your readers can do if they want a really in-depth discussion, we wrote an article, I wrote it with Theodore Apostle and Lynn Eden for the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists called What Would Happen If an 800 Kiloton Nuclear Warhead Were Detonated Over Midtown Manhattan? And we picked that size warhead because that's a, what you would call that a standard size Russian strategic nuclear weapon. There's probably a thousand of those they have ready to launch at the United States or wherever they choose. So one of those weapons on an average weather day would set about 100 square miles on fire instantly if it were detonated over a city, you know, any city. It would ignite fires over a surface area of 100 square miles. And I focus on the thermal effects because the firestorm that results from this, all those fires join together in the fire zone, nobody's going to survive in that zone. So, you know, the war planners like to talk about blasts and all that, but blast really doesn't matter. If, if you're in the fire zone, you're going to die. You can't escape from it. In a matter of about 10 or 15 minutes, the air temperatures rise above the boiling point of water. And the hurricane force winds start blowing in towards the center of the fire zone. It's like a chimney effect. So if you can imagine one gigantic 100 square mile firestorm and you multiply that times 100 or 1,000, then you can see what a nuclear war would do. And that's how it produced tens of millions of tons of smoke in just a matter of an hour or two, and that's what would cause nuclear winter. There are people, generally with a lot of money, who think that moving to underground bunkers or snagging a sheep farm in New Zealand would allow them to survive nuclear winter. In your opinion, how feasible is that? Well, you know, I heard one of the scientists who had done these studies, I think it was Dr. Toon, kind of discussing that peripherally, and he said, you know, if you're in an area like New Zealand and there's been a large nuclear war, it may be that you might be able to survive there in sort of a Stone Age sort of setting by catching fish. You know, there are probably going to still be some fish in the ocean you can catch, but it would, you're going to lose the industrial setting that you're in. And the weather still is going to be in the southern hemisphere, even though there's going to be about half as much smoke. There's still going to be a global cooling effect to the point where it's going to be really hard to grow food. So I just, I mean, the thing is, is people need to understand that trying to run away from this, even if you've got some ultra-rich thing, you're kind of kidding yourself. You know, there's not going to be some happy ending to this. And there's more to it than just starvation. If you unleash all these toxins, one of the things that never gets talked about is what happens to nuclear power plants in wartime. If you can imagine, there's like 100 nuclear reactors in the United States. There's over 400 globally. And they each are, have huge amounts of radioactivity stored on site. And they, they require off-site power to keep the, the reactors cooled and the spent fuel pools cooled. And if those things, if they're targeted, they're going to go up and distribute the radioactivity. But even if they're not, if they lose the off-site power, sooner or later, they're probably going to melt down and the fuel pools are going to boil off. And then you're going to have enormous releases of radiation. 
and that's just one of the things that can happen. You know, all the other toxins that are going to be released. We don't want to do that to the planet and to all the different complex life forms that exist on it. It needs to be considered and talked about. It's, these things are never discussed publicly. Uh, the nuclear weapon states don't like it. You know, you, how many times have you heard a discussion on nuclear winter in mainstream media? It's, it's a verboten topic, as far as I can tell, just because it doesn't serve the narrative. You know, the narrative is that terrorists might get a nuclear weapon and Russia is evil, but, you know, they don't talk about why we can't have a nuclear war with Russia because of the effects that would basically kill even the winner of the nuclear war. If we were able to destroy all of Russia's nuclear weapons with the first strike, the environmental consequences from winning the war is going to cause everybody in the U.S. to die. You know, you can't win a nuclear war. And that's got to be the starting point of any disarmament discussion or any sort of, we can't allow our leaders to get mad and push the button because then we're cooked. Just this week, we learned that Trump told military commanders last summer that he wanted a tenfold increase in the size of our nuclear arsenal. And he has also threatened to tear up every piece of successful arms control agreement that we have made in the past. In your opinion, how likely is it that our current administration is on an inevitable, unstoppable march towards a nuclear Armageddon? Well, you know, it's hard to tell from out here in the middle of Missouri, but and I, I did read a report where supposedly that report about multiplying times 10, the nuclear arsenal was denied. You know, I, I don't trust the news much anymore. It feels a lot more like propaganda a lot of the time than the news. And there's some people that want to hope that the military has enough sense to prevent a war like that, but I'm not entirely convinced that's the case. It's just hard to know. I do marvel at the fact that it seems like so few of our political leaders have really much of any understanding about nuclear weapons. Even the arms control experts that I read, sometimes they, like uh, there was a guy that was dismissing the, the ban treaty that was done at the UN recently as the people that won the Nobel Prize, the Peace Prize, ICANN, International Committee to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. He sort of said, well, all their arguments aren't very sophisticated. They just come down to nuclear weapons are awful. So I, I wrote a reply to that saying, if you read the studies by Tuna Robach, then there are some very sophisticated arguments against nuclear war. But I can't give you an, an estimate of what the danger is of. It feels dangerous to me. You know, I really worry that we're moving towards some kind of collision with North Korea and even Iran. But, you know, I don't know. What if North Korea didn't or wasn't able to launch a nuclear bomb? but instead use conventional weaponry against, say, the nuclear reactors in Japan, which is within their ability to do. What would that do? Well, I think that's an important question that is really never discussed. Japan has got a whole series of nuclear power plants on its west coast. And these plants, some of them have five and six reactors there, and they each, each reactor, of course, has its own spent fuel pool. That's a ute where they store the used fuel rods after they come out of the reactor. And a pool like that has something like five to ten times more long-lived radioactivity in it than the reactor core does itself. There are huge concentrations of radioactivity. If North Korea decided to destroy any of those power plants, or all of them, but even just one of them, it would make a great deal, if not most, of Japan uninhabitable. Because the prevailing winds would blow that radioactivity across Japan. You know, we saw something like that at Fukushima 
but the spent fuel pools weren't destroyed there. The reactors were breached and they melted down and a great deal of radiation was released, but most of it actually blew out across the, the ocean initially because the winds were blowing it away from Japan. It was only towards the end of the, uh, the incident where a lot of it blew across Japan and something like about 10% of Japan was contaminated enough that under the old rules it should have been evacuated. You know, also remember North Korea's got probably 25 to 30 to as many as 60 nuclear weapons now. They don't even have to put them in a missile. They can put them in a ship. They can sail that ship up to a port uh, and detonate it. It can be dropped out of a plane, but there's a lot of ways to deliver a nuclear weapon to its target. That's one of the things I worry about even in the U.S. You know, everybody's focusing on their missiles, but what if they put one in a container vessel or in a hold of a ship, sailed it into San Diego or Los Angeles and detonated it? So, yeah, the nuclear power plants represent huge targets. There was an English lord that said, he had a quote a long time ago, but he said if nuclear reactors would have been in Europe before World War II, then Europe would have become uninhabitable as a result of that. So, yeah, that's another reason why we certainly don't want to have a war in Korea, because it would kill millions of people, and that's just one of the ways it could do it. What difference, if any, do you think that the awarding of the Nobel Peace Prize to ICANN, the International Campaign for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons, will make on our escalating nuclear standoff with North Korea? Part of the reason I spent a lot of time working at the UN is because it turns out that there, there's a lot of countries in the world that really don't want to have their populations die in a nuclear war. <laughs> How silly of them. <laughs> well, you know, historically, I honestly think a lot of countries in the Southern Hemisphere kind of thought, well, the hell with the Russians and the Americans. They want to blow each other up. Let them go ahead. But now that these environmental consequences of nuclear war become a little bit better known, and a lot of that's through the efforts of ICANN and other activists. I gave a lecture at the UN in 2010. I was able to give a 10-minute talk to the General Assembly or the First Committee at that time. I gave a PowerPoint explaining it. So I think a lot of people have gotten the message. And that I think that what led to a lot of the push, the Austrian pledge, and eventually the creation of the treaty to ban nuclear weapons. Because, you know, it's quite clear it's the, the nuclear arsenals sort of represent a, a self-destruct mechanism for the human race. It's really like a computerized suicide machine. But it, the most frightening thing to me is that the people that are in charge of the weapons don't realize that, that they don't grasp that. And I think one of the biggest complaints I have is that the media seems to be willing to take orders to ignore these discussions and not publicize this information because I do think that American people have enough common sense that if they understood the real threat of this, that they would uniformly say, hey, we got to put a stop to this. But we don't see that today because people don't understand any of this information. They're not exposed to it. On your website, nucleardarkness.org, which we will link to on our website, you have a tab at the top for solutions, which has a not particularly long list of options there. What, if any, solutions might there be, and what can we do to implement them? Well, I probably should apologize for my website. It's pretty sadly out of date. You know, I kind of ran out of funding for my work as an activist about six or seven years ago, and I've been working two jobs since. <laughs> you know, what I see right now is that the UN has passed by this treaty to ban nuclear weapons, and it's 122 nations voted for it. So there really is a growing global awareness and, you know, ICANN just won the Nobel Prize. So I would 
point to the work of ICANN. You know, there's groups like Nuclear Age Peace Foundation that have helped support me and also Physicians for Social Responsibility. Those two uh, great organizations to, uh, to join and to work with. I think that we have to work towards education and trying to be more politically active to get this message out. It's certainly going out in other parts of the world, but the Western media and U.S. media tends to black a lot of this information out. You know, the United States was very much against the treaty to ban nuclear weapons. I mean, they were saying, oh, this is terrible, this is a waste of time, <laughs> which I think says a lot about what's going on with our country. It's, it's very sad to me that this would be uh, denigrated and blocked. I mean, I appreciate a show like yours where you put this information out. And, you know, it's probably we're at a point where we need more than just letter writing, too. I, to, I, I'm, I don't know. I'm not sure what they advocate, but I think, you know, getting out and protesting is probably a good idea if, that's, if there's an opportunity to do so. We need hundreds of thousands of people taking to the streets and saying no to nuclear weapons. Well, you know, we had there was almost a million people that did that in, in New York City back in the 80s, back when people were a little more aware of what was going on. But I think that's part of the reason why they dropped the subject, you know, from public schools and people are so uneducated about nuclear weapons. In my classes, I asked my students, I said, well, is, I try to make them think about it. I said, don't you think that something like this is something that you should know about by now? You know, why, are, why is it that you're a junior or senior in college? You, you've never heard, you don't know what a thermonuclear weapon is or that the United States has a thousand strategic nuclear weapons they can launch in a matter of two to 15 minutes. People don't understand. They don't know this. But I think the reason they don't know about it is because they don't want a million people on the street. <laughs> a personal question. I know that after I heard you speak at Dr. Helen Caldicott's symposium back in 2015 in New York, I was pretty devastated by the information because up till that point, my understanding of nuclear winter was possibly more informed than most people, but still pretty vague. You really brought it into focus. What I want to know is, how do you deal as a person with all this nightmarish information and still be able to sleep at night? Or do you? <laughs> well, I have to be honest. It's been harder to sleep lately. I live out in the country, and uh, I try to work outside and get you know, exercise. I got some apple trees and I was putting together a cider press the other day. And and I, I still also, I, you know, I've been teaching this class at the university for about four years now. So I feel like I'm still, I'm trying to do something sort of locally. I still write about it. But, you know, I mean, it is hard not to find this depressing, particularly in a circumstance where you're seeing threats going back and forth from Trump and, you know, North Korea on a daily basis. And, I do worry. I don't, you know, it's hard to know where to start sometimes, but I'm not at the point where I'm just going to give up or be quiet about it. What, if anything, can we do, the listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat, to support awareness of nuclear winter as a very real consequence of nuclear war? And what actions do you suggest we take to hopefully avert that particular disaster? That's a daunting question because I sort of ask myself that on a daily basis. I think the best answers I can give you is for your listeners to consider joining one of these organizations that's actively working towards publicizing this information. I'd say the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation, ICANN, you know, they just won the Nobel Prize. A lot of people know about them, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. 
it's been kind of quiet here in the U.S., but it's very active in Europe and Australia, places like that. So if some of your listeners could start forming some ICANN chapters locally, there's a Global Zero that uh, is also an organization working to get rid of nuclear weapons. In a fight like this, it really helps to join an organization where you can pool your resources and you don't feel like you're alone. And it's also, there's an educational aspect of that where you become more informed and maybe learn about who you can call and who you can talk to. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us while we still have time and nuclear winter has not yet happened? (laughs) Well, I would just ask your listeners to, you know, there's times in your life where hopefully you come to some new realization and every once in a while you think, I got to do something about this, you know, whether it's a leak in your roof or something. But this is this is a hard thing to deal with just because it's hard to know what to do about it. But if we all hope that somebody else does something about it, then it's likely that not enough people are going to take the trouble to become activists and to speak out before nuclear weapons start going off someplace. And then, you know, all I mean, I worry if, if we get a nuclear detonation in the U.S., then they're probably going to have martial law declared and it's going to be a lot harder to speak out about anything. So I really do think now's the time for people to try to pass this information along that there's a great potential on the Internet to have information go viral. And so I would say that that's the best way to have people forward links to your program, to the website, and start talking to your friends about it. Because there's no place really to hide in a nuclear war. And... If, if we are stupid enough to allow our uninformed leaders to lead us into one, then we're going to have to deal with the consequences, and they're, they're going to be fatal. Stephen Starr, I've wanted to have you as a guest on Nuclear Hot Seat for several years now, and I'm so delighted that we finally made that happen. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thanks very much for having me. That was Stephen Starr, who is a senior scientist with Physicians for Social Responsibility, and an associate of the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation. His website is nucleardarkness.org, and that's where he discusses the wide range of environmental consequences of nuclear war. While you're there, be sure to check out the Firestorm Simulator under the drop-down tab, War Consequences. It's a little long to go into here, so we'll have a link up on the website nuclearhotseat.com under this episode, number 330. And you can also find out what a nuclear bomb of any size would do to your local community at NukeMap, nuclearsecrecy.com slash NukeMap, or just Google NukeMap. It'll come up. Loads of scary fun and just in time for Halloween. Activist shout-out! This is from a joint Facebook post by esteemed activist Harvey Wasserman and Myla Reason. They say that they are feeling like Cassandra and hoping that decision makers and citizens of California will wake up and come to the realization that it is nothing short of reckless to allow PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric, to continue to operate its decrepit Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant for another day. PG&E is now being investigated for negligence that most likely led to the killer fires in Northern California. PG&E's negligence also led to the deadly San Bruno pipeline explosion in 2010. 
Why on earth does anyone think that it's okay to allow PG&E to operate a nuclear power plant on a site riddled with earthquake faults when the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission senior resident inspector, Dr. Michael Peck, warned us years ago that the plant is not engineered to withstand an expected quake and it would result in a nuclear meltdown. Are we so distracted that we are incapable of taking responsible and immediate action to avert a preventable radioactive catastrophe on the California coast? Have we been lulled into a false sense of security because a deal was struck to close the plant in 2024? What if the quake that triggers the preventable nuclear disaster comes sooner? Good questions, all. And regarding PG&E's suspected contribution, if not creation, of the firestorm in Northern California, we were shocked and saddened to initially learn that Paul Fry and his family, who are the owners of the Fry family vineyards in Mendocino County, had experienced a destruction of their winery. The better news that has come from checking out their site is that all members of the family and winery staff are safe, and that while rustic office buildings, the tasting room, and bottling line have burned, the main house and the insulated warehouse holding their case goods are unscathed. Although vineyards typically don't burn, with the intensity of the firestorm, they did lose about 10% of their estate vineyards situated along the peripheries of the ranch. But in addition to the home ranch, they have 300 acres of satellite vineyards scattered through Redwood Valley and Potter Valley that are in great shape. Why is this being read on Nuclear Hot Seat? Because Paul Fry and his family have been enormous supporters of the movement to close down both San Onofre in Southern California and also Diablo Canyon in Northern California. As well, they have worked with Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network to raise awareness about the need for testing of our food supplies from the radiation from Fukushima and elsewhere. The family has hosted events for our community on their beautiful land, and they've also donated wine for our events. And I've got to say, we had better wine than just about any other movement in the country. So Paul and the rest of the Fry family, our hearts are with you. We're glad you survived it. We're sorry for the losses. And we look forward to you rejoining us in the struggle very soon. Here's today's final thought. With Halloween coming up, I've often thought that those who oppose nuclear should have some kind of nuclear-haunted house where people can come and walk through, and we get to present the truth about this awful technology and really give them something to be scared about. So just imagine, as they walk into nuclear hell house, we hit them with some familiar history first. Manhattan Project, Hiroshima, Nagasaki... Pyrotechnics of those blasts might appear cool to some people. So to avoid making them attractive, we'll show pictures of the victims, the destruction. We'll give them the front-page headline of journalist Wilfred Burchett's uncensored coverage of the aftermath of the bomb, the only uncensored article that ever got to be written. It was for the Australian paper The Daily Express, and it read The Atomic Plague. We could use voiceovers to share the most inescapable, 
damnable quotes from the article, as well as testimony from the victims that has been collected through the years. We can show film montages of bomb blasts, add sound effects, show the impact on people exposed to radiation in the Marshall Islands, at the uranium mines of the American Southwest, the hibaksha in Japan, those who survived the bomb blasts, the moms and kids of North St. Louis. We do not lack for scary images. Mutated children from Chernobyl. Charts showing the increase in cancer rates since the first bombs were exploded in the atmosphere. Radiation releases from Fukushima. Anyone who listens to this show regularly knows the litany of what can and has gone wrong in the nuclear world. This would be a way to expose those who think nukes are great or claim they don't want to know about nukes but relish a scary experience to be dared into attending to see if they can take it and thus allow them to learn the ugly, long-suppressed truths about nuclear. Then, rather than leaving them on a downer, end the walk through this haunted nuclear hellhouse with hope. Visuals of the international campaign for the abolition of nuclear weapons, winning the Nobel Peace Prize for 2017. The passage of the United Nations nuclear bomb ban. Pictures of activists marching. Greenpeace actions. Protests of all sorts with uplifting music in the background, urging people to participate by joining in a single international day of protest against nukes in all of their forms. Date to be determined. At the exit, you can have these now-informed and hopefully motivated individuals sign up on sheets for future anti-nuclear activists of America or anywhere else. We should also have grief counselors there and big boxes of tissues because people will be impacted. Oh, and make sure to get everyone's email address so you can build a database and stay in touch. It's too late to put something together for this year. Maybe next? It could be done. We can get a template together of modules, provide script and visuals, and offer it online for a nominal fee, just enough to cover expenses. Theater companies could put this on. School and church groups. Any group of concerned citizens who find themselves near a Rocky Flats, Hanford site, Savannah River site, North St. Louis, Sellafield, Saskatchewan, Kudankulam, Niagara Falls, and, of course, in Japan. The consciousness-raising potential of such a theatrical experience is unlimited. So, an honest outreach. If anyone is interested in putting something like this together in time for next Halloween season, drop me an email at info at nuclearhotseat.com and let's talk about what it would take. Because, let's face it, Nuclear and Halloween are a perfect match. After all, once you know the truth about all things nuclear, it is some of the scariest information on Earth. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, October 17, 2017. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclearnews.net and Sean McGee, deunrenard.wordpress.com and Hervé Courtois, simplyinfo.com and Nancy Faust, japantimes.co.jp, commondreams.org, plowshares.org, nbcnews.com, govtech.com, 
beyondnuclear.org, truth-out.org, hannibal.net, foreignpolicy.com, rt.com, oilprice.com, power magazine, qz.com, counterpunch.org, nationalgeographic.com, the soul-dead cubicle drones who write those press releases for world nuclear news, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission event reports, and a shout-out to the Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers who show your love for life on this planet by being the kick-ass defenders of real truth and supporters of nuclear awareness that you are. Thanks for gathering at the Nuclear Hot Seat blog site on Facebook. Be sure to stop by, click like, post, and share. And a special thanks this week to listener Bill Dickinson for his invaluable help in setting up this week's interview with Stephen Starr. If you know of a radio station in your area that would be interested in joining the growing list of broadcast affiliates carrying Nuclear Hot Seat, contact us with their info or have them contact us by sending an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And an exciting announcement this week. We welcome the members of the Pacifica Audioport Network, 250 stations, broadcast stations around the country that are now being offered nuclear hot seat for their programming needs. If you have a Pacifica affiliate in your area, do call them up and let them know about the show. Put their attention on it, and hopefully we will get it on their broadcast station before too long. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, accompaniment by John Barnard, recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2017, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided. And a reminder that if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment to send a donation to NuclearHotSeat.com. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that there is no such thing as a limited nuclear war. We're all on the same planet. The effects are limitless and last forever. There, you've all had your nuclear wake-up call. Now, don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. <laughs>